we have before us Psalm 83, which is um, really very appropriate to the situation uh, prophetically in the last days. And I would suggest that whatever initial application this psalm had, and I, I'm not sure what that was, and I'd be interested to hear from anyone who, who has any ideas about that, uh, whatever the initial application was, the ultimate uh, fulfillment of this psalm, I think, must be in the last days. Why I say that? Uh, verse 1, don't keep silent, don't keep silent and don't be still. That Hebrew word for still there is to be at rest, don't stay at rest. And I would connect that with Isaiah 62, which again in the context of uh, the latter days, talks about giving God no rest until he saves Israel from their enemies. And God says in response to that, for Zion's sake I will not rest, I will not be still. It's the same Hebrew word. I will intervene. So then the picture that we get is of Israel under threat in the last days and uh, desperately needing God's intervention to save them. And there is prayer made, it seems to me, by Israel, by the Jewish people living in, in Israel, as they come to repentance, uh, particularly relating to, uh, of course, the, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, and that is what brings them to desperately want the appearing of Jesus, and then he comes in response to, to their prayer and their repentance. So then, their there's going to be prayer made, and I think not only by by natural Israel, but by spiritual Israel, but a, a, a real prayerfulness in the community is what's going to bring about the second coming. And as you know, I think that the actual date of the second coming in terms of a calendar date is not necessarily fixed. There are preconditions that God alone ultimately knows uh, that must be, must be met. And yet, in a sense, we can hasten the coming of the day of God in 2 Peter 3. And for the elect's sake, and the elect are both God's natural people, Israel, and us, spiritual Israel, uh, for the elect's sake, the days will be shortened. So then there will be this prayerfulness, this intense prayer, which will be brought about by uh, the political situation, the military situation around Israel, and I fear uh, persecution of, of the household, of spiritual Israel, that leads to this desperate pleading for the Lord Jesus to come. Now, the psalm goes on to say that uh, the enemies are stirred up, verse 3, they have conspired against your people, they plot against your cherished ones. And yet in verse 5, they form an alliance against you. So clearly, whoever touches Israel touches the apple of God's eye, and whatever is done to God's people is done uh, to, to God. And therefore you get the situation in Matthew 25, where in the last day the Lord Jesus will say to us, Well done, when I was hungry you gave me something to eat, when I was thirsty you gave me something to drink, and the faithful will have lived their lives so sort of unselfconsciously that they will not remember. And the implication is that they will almost argue back with the Lord Jesus. No, like, no, you got a wrong guy, I didn't do that. Um, 
And it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty convicted person that, in front of the Lord Jesus at the Day of Judgment, would uh, sort of dare to imply you've got it wrong. Uh, but that is the the degree of persuasion that we will have that this is not me, that I am a sinner and I I am not worthy. And you're telling me that I did all these things for you? No, I didn't. And then, perhaps as never before, we will come to see the truth of all this: that God's people are Him. And our attitude to God's people is our attitude to him. And so, in this um, last day situation, when the nations around Israel uh, make these plans against your people, they are doing it against you, against God. Now, verse 5, they have conspired together with one mind. They form an alliance. Now, there is within the Arab world a big idea of what is called pan-Arabism, that uh, all the Arab peoples are one and should be one, particularly in their desire to destroy Israel. And what we read in the psalm is a direct uh, prophecy, it seems to me, of what has started to go on in the last, uh, let's say, 60, 70 years, since suddenly 1948, when there has been this pan-Arabic, that is, throughout the Arab-speaking world, this uh, desire to unite against the common enemy, which is seen as Zionism, which is seen as Israel, and this problem they have with the very name Israel. It says in verse 4 that they will say, let us destroy them as a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. And this is a big thing with them. The uh, Arab people hate to talk about Israel. They talk about Palestine. You look at uh, a lot of maps, let's say in uh, uh, school uh, school atlases and stuff like that, in Arab-speaking countries, and you don't find Israel. There is a big hang-up that they have about the name Israel. So this is exactly what we see. When you look at documents like the Palestinian Covenant, which was the, uh, the basis of the PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization, many years ago, and uh, the sort of founding documents of various organizations that are so against Israel, you will see this really, these verses could be straight out of those charters. This is absolutely the situation. The amazing thing was that in the last 2,000 years, there was never a point when the nations around Israel were in a position to make this kind of alliance. And you know, the, the uh, nations around Israel were not were not nations. They were Bedouins. They were just wandering uh, herdsmen and stuff like that. But since oil was discovered and they got independence from colonial powers, they are now legitimate nations uh, with enough strength to attack Israel. So, looking at this list of uh, nations from verse six down to verse eight. If you look at this uh, uh, geographically, you'll see that the idea is that it starts in the east and then goes down to the uh, southeast, then to the south, then to the southwest, and up to the north, and then to the northeast. Uh, and the idea is that it's a sort of a, a, a clockwise surrounding of Israel. And that is exactly the situation that you see today. Now, before the establishment of Israel as a nation in 1948, this situation could not really have come about. So it does seem to me that 
we are living in the time of the end. And the situation around Israel is a direct proof of that. Because prophecies like this have never had a chance, a serious possibility of fulfillment until our days. If you count up the number of nations mentioned, you'll see there's ten of them. And it's uh, pretty tempting to associate that with the ten toes of Daniel's image, which will stand upon the land, as I see it, the earth or the land, it's the same Hebrew word for earth and land, uh, which will stand upon the land of Israel at the time when uh, the stone, which is the Lord Jesus, comes to the earth, destroys that system which is standing upon Israel, headed up by Babylon, and establishes God's kingdom. You've also got ten nations <clears throat> mentioned as being aggressive to Israel and invading Israel in Ezekiel 38, which invasion is to be ended, really, by the, uh, by the second coming of, of Jesus. Now, I say ten nations in Ezekiel 38, just um, in passing, I am including the merchants of Tarshish, Sheba, Dinan, and the merchants of Tarshish. Now, some uh, people who think that that refers to the good old... Uh, good old British Empire, but um, I would prefer to, to take that in its more natural kind of, uh, and biblical, I would say, interpretation, which is that Sheba, Dedan, and Tarshish are nations or cities around Israel, Tarshish being simply Tyre. And <clears throat> on that basis, again, you've got ten nations, and the idea of Sheba, Dedan, and Tarshish, uh, I, have you come to take a spoil? Harry Whitaker suggested many years ago now that uh, the implication of the Hebrew there could well be, have you come to take a spoil? We shall join you. Not, hey you, what are you doing? But, we are with you. We'll join in the spoil. And so I, I think that, as I said, there's never been a time when Israel has been surrounded by her enemies in this sort of uh, round-the-clock kind of way, all around the points of the compass, uh, as she is today. And they have made, without doubt, this alliance, this conspiracy with one mind against Israel. So I, I do really think that this is looking forward to the very last days. And in verse 13, My God, make them like tumbleweed, like chaff before the wind, and pursue them, verse 15, with your tempest and your storm, this idea of being like chaff before the wind, uh, in verse 13, this is exactly the language of Daniel 2, 35 and 44, about how when the little stone comes to the earth, destroys the ten toes of the image, it will grind them to powder, and they shall be swept away like chaff before God's wind. Uh, and we believe that, that to, uh, we believe that to refer to the second coming of Jesus. So then, really, the simple message from this is that it really does seem to me that the situation in Israel and around Israel, in the land promised to Abraham, which I suggest is the, uh, the real focus of Bible prophecy rather than Europe or, or Russia or whatever, um, the situation really does seem to me to be looking forward to the return of Jesus very soon. And I would like to offer a few uh, reflections on the last three verses from 16 to 18 fill their faces with confusion that they may seek your name and then let them be disappointed and dismayed forever yes let them be confounded and perish that they may know that you alone whose name is Yahweh are the most high 
Now, what is this saying? Now, 16 would appear to be saying, uh, humiliate them so that they may seek you. So that there may be the possibility of repentance. Now, that, that is, what I think, what is behind the terrible judgments to come upon the earth in the last days. Uh, when I say the earth, I mean the land, as in the land promised to Abraham. And the vials, and indeed some of the seals, the, the judgments poured out upon the earth or the land in Revelation, are all based upon the plagues that were sent upon Egypt. And the plagues sent upon Egypt were not sort of an angry god who's much more powerful than Pharaoh just trying to make him squirm and just hitting at him. I do seriously believe, and we looked at this when we, uh, we looked at uh, some of the chapters about the plagues in Exodus, that God was seeking Pharaoh's repentance. He really did want Pharaoh to repent. And we took the lesson that if God made such elaborate efforts, even with a Pharaoh, then how much more should we never give up on anyone and should we take comfort in the fact that God really is not indifferent and that God really wants us to be saved? In Revelation, when we read about the various uh, vials being poured out uh, upon the earth, it's commented a couple of times that, and they did not repent. Why that comment? Well, I would suggest that uh, the idea was that, that the pouring out of the vials was so that, you know, the, the bowls of uh, judgment, uh, was so that people would repent. And sadly, it seems that they will not. So I would see that verse 16 of our psalm, fill them with shame so that they may seek your name, Yahweh. I would see that as a desire for them to repent. But then the 17 and 18 go on, let them be confounded and perish. Well, that seems like a kind of death wish on these people. So I would suggest that that is what comes after they have been given the chance to seek God's name. They don't do this. So let them perish, that they may know that you alone, whose name is Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. Now this again is the language of Exodus about Pharaoh. God says pretty well those very words to Pharaoh. I'm doing all this so that you may know that I alone, whose name is Yahweh, that I am the Most High, that I am above all your gods, and I am the one ultimately true God. And yet it would seem that this uh, coming to know you, verse 18, is at a time when, in verse 17, they shall be confounded and perish. I think what that may mean is that, in a sense, God gets his way, that men and women will come ultimately at the day of judgment, even through their, the, the process of condemnation, to know him and to recognize him. And if that's how those condemned people are going to die, sadly, they're going to end their existence knowing God, just that they came to know him too late, then you see a very powerful logic that we are to know Yahweh. Now, that means a lot. That doesn't just mean to uh, learn certain truths about him and to be baptized, to get yourself on the right side. The whole idea, uh, the Hebrew idea of yada, to, to know, uh, is to have a relationship. That's the idea, uh, to have some intimate knowledge, not just acquire some theoretical knowledge. The people will come to perceive him. 
those condemned people right in their last death throes, that they will come to this. But, of course, sadly, too late. So the, the point is that that is ultimately what we have to do, that we have to come to this knowledge of Yahweh, this desire more than anything else to be his and to be in his kingdom. And we either come to that now or, sadly, we shall come to it in condemnation at the last day. So there is a logic there, a, an extremely powerful logic, that in that day, as we stand before the Lord Jesus, one thing and one thing alone shall be important. I want to be in the kingdom of God more than anything else. And that's why in a number of the parables and the teaching there is about condemnation, the rejected don't just shrug their shoulders and walk away and say, yeah, well, I, I was never that turned on by all this stuff anyway. The, the rejected virgins come desperately knocking on heaven's door. Let me in, let me in. Uh, and he says, you know, I, I don't know you. I never knew you. But their last moment, as it were, is knocking on heaven's door, desperately wanting to be there. And it was rather the same with the condemned generation of Israel and the wilderness who were held up for us in 1 Corinthians and Hebrews as a type of uh, the Christians who shall be rejected at the last day. When they're told, look, you're not going into the land, what do they do? They think, oh, yeah, great, we didn't want to go in there anyway. No, they try to get in there. And God says, don't even try. They try, and then the people from Hor come out and chase them, uh, and uh, chase them like bees and, and kill them. They desperately wanted to get into the land, which just moments before they had despised, and said, no, we don't want to go there. So if in the end this is our final point of destiny, to desperately want to be in God's kingdom more than anything else in the world, and you see the logic, don't you? That now is the time for us to do that. That this is the time in this life to come to that. Because in the end you shall come to it anyway. So then why bother with all the other things which there are? And I don't just mean material things. That I want a good career and I want a nice house. I want to live in a nice suburb. I want a nice car and I want this for my kids and that for my kids. So on and so forth. All the other things, spending your days, your subconscious thought time, uh, fretting about this person or that person or this injustice or that injustice. Look, the ultimate issue of your destiny, and of course mine, the ultimate issue of our destiny is that I want to please God, to know God, to know you, to serve you, to give my all for you. That is our ultimate end. And if that is to be our ultimate end, as it will be the ultimate end, I think, in some sense of all those that experience God's judgments, as you've got an example here in Psalm 83, um, then let it be so for us right now.